Hi, everybody. My name is Traven Rice. I am the arts and culture editor and co-founder of The Lowdown. And uh, we've been covering the Lower East Side neighborhood, living here, working here, um, and reporting here for about, well, since 2009. Um, <laughs> that's 14 years now. Um, and so we've seen a lot of change. Um, this podcast is focusing on culture changers. And by that, I mean all kinds of culture. Um, of course, we can have a big conversation about what, what culture is. But um, the nice thing is that because we've been so embedded in the neighborhood, I've got plenty of people that um, I consider to be culture changers, changers that I can say, hey, let's come have a conversation. And so one of those is here with me today. Um, I'm here with the founder of Orchard Street Runners, Joe DeNoto. Perfect. <laughs> and um, Joe has been on the Lower East Side doing um, the running uh, Orchard Street Runners scene that you've created for almost as long as the lowdown. Almost, yeah. Yeah. We were just talking about how much has changed in the neighborhood while we've still kind of hung in here. So I just want to introduce a Joe, a born and raised New Yorker, um, founded Orchard Street Runners after a successful yet unfulfilling career in architecture. Growing up, Joe spent his spare time helping his dad out on his bread route, playing basketball, oil painting, and drawing. After high school, he attended Buffalo University for architecture and FIT for computer animation and interactive media. Today, his passion for running, design, and knack for bringing people together has enabled him to create a culture-driving NYC running community that emulates both the grit and energy of the city. Entering OSR's 12th year, Joe's creativity and background continues to permeate everything he does and has led to a series of world-renowned, unsanctioned running races. When he isn't directing races, he can be found designing apparel, advising brands on product lines, or consulting on private productions and events. How's that sound? That sounds good. That sounds about right. A little embellished, but good. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so we're going to talk about the basics, because I know a lot of people don't know about Archer Street Runners, but we have been following you from the beginning. Yeah, you were actually the first uh, publication to, to even show any interest in writing about what we were doing. So thank you for that. Uh, my pleasure. I mean, I can't help it. I have a good eye for somebody who's going to be, you know, doing doing something interesting. And <laughs> Lucky me. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that it would turn into something that lasted this long. You know, it's, a, it's been a, a really interesting journey with it. And I'm thankful for it, but it's 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 definitely been more interesting, I think, than being an architect would have. Mm. So, how did it start? And um, and for those who don't know, so the big the big thing is sort of sanctioned versus unsanctioned. How did it get going? I uh, I was interested in bringing people together to form a running group in 2011 to kind of um, socialize and. It was shortly after everybody had gotten laid off in 2008, so there were a lot of people who had found alternative jobs that had given them more free time during the day, so a lot of people were hanging out in the neighborhood. That's why we started the lowdown. Yeah, right. <laughs> so um, I think people just saw me running a lot, and I worked at Barrio Chino, a popular restaurant, so they would see me in both contexts, running and then at the restaurant, and they would ask, you know, 
how did you start running, so on. So eventually it just made sense to kind of pull all these interested people together and um, create a starting point. And a lot of friends showed interest and so on, and none of them showed up the first time that we, we met or ever. Um, but they were the, the catalyst to do it. And um, people did show up. And it was interesting because it took very little work at that time to get people to show up. And it just kept happening week after week. And when you, But when you say show up, you mean you were like, hey, meet here, and we're going to run at night. Was it always at night? No, it started in oh. the morning. I, I was trying to appeal to runners, so I didn't really express my version of what I wanted to do until later. So initially, I was trying to appeal to what already existed, and it seemed to make sense to, to do it in the morning. So we started at 8 o'clock on Tuesdays in the a.m., and we would meet at Lost Weekend, and every runner got a free coffee. So that was like the draw. And that was a cafe that was on Orchard Street. Yeah, uh, one of the good ones. And, um, yeah, people just started showing up. And then I think I got a little more confident and things got a little mundane quickly doing morning runs. But you decided the route and you, right? And you were, and so was there a certain length or distance or how did you define it at that point? At that point, we were doing probably three mile runs, maybe five mile on the, the longer side. And again, in the morning. So really appealing to the average runner. Um, a kind of a, a welcoming environment, you know, everyone's welcome and, you know, we, we wait for each other. We kind of went together and so on. But it was on the streets. On the streets, yeah. We would run through the streets. So we would set a different course each week and, um, you know, front loaded ahead of time on Facebook, I think is what we were using at the time. We would post a map with the route, the distance. We'd say where were we were meeting, what time and so on. And, um, you know, it generated a certain following and... Initially, it was very small and very low-key. Um, but then, yeah, it got boring doing mornings, you know? And because of the experiences I had going to work with my father, uh, delivering Italian bread in the middle of the night and stuff, I always fell in love with the city at night and how the streets were different and, and you know, depending on what hour, they would be empty or not. So I just found it more interesting and there was more energy. So at a certain point, I switched it to 8 p.m. instead of 8 a.m., and kind of started that that chapter of of the running group and it's ongoing at this point but i really think that that's where my passion lied was in um kind of engaging the streets at night in this way that you could be invisible you know if you were all black and you know you you just stayed out of the headlights no one would ever see you and my theory was if they can't see you they can't hit you <laughs> so there was a it was almost safer to be invisible you know so, but it's still on the street, not on the sidewalk? Never on the sidewalk. Yeah, I don't know. There is this thing about, there's these spaces in the street, like in between traffic, like cars naturally keep a certain distance from each other, and it's the perfect place to run. So like a double yellow is one of the safest avenues to tear down a street because very few cars touch the double yellow, you know, and the same thing um, with a parked car and then the traffic lane. There's, you know, a two to three foot space there at all times that's just psychologically maintained, I guess, you know, so you don't hit another car. Mm -hmm. But as a pedestrian, you know, you can kind of slip in out of those cracks, creating a path that is usually faster than traffic. Wow. And so you were like, let's try this at night. And then people were like, oh, that was way better. 
<laughs> well, there was another group at the time running at night called Bridge Runners, and they had generated a certain community around what they did. And um, I think when, after a certain amount of time of doing OSR and when we were doing the night runs, you know, word got out that there was another group doing something similar, people started to cross over. And that led to a huge influx of runners in our community and a lot of uh, interactions and so on, a lot of growth. And um, we did it slightly differently. Their, their run was organized differently and had a different energy and a different experience. And, you know, we, we provided something else. And as things progressed, I, I engineered it to be a little bit towards um, maybe a more experienced runner or somebody that's been running a longer time, faster, and, and maybe just looking for a different outlet. Mm-hmm. Instead of it being so driven around running together and keeping a group together, I kind of organized it so that everyone could take off on their own, know where they were going and where, where to end up. And somehow that engineered a faster run and uh, faster people started showing up and eventually it just made sense to start doing races because of the people that I was engaging, you know, and they had a competitive spirit and they had the speed and the, the, the fitness to do amazing things. So eventually we just started putting together these events that would draw in these amazing runners. Is there a name for that type of running? I mean, there's off-road or cross-country or urban or what is it? I mean, is it a thing? It's, I mean, I think it's, you could call it like there are different types of runs that are based on the effectiveness they have for training. Mm -hmm. And somehow that name, it's called a threshold run, translates the best. And the way that OSR has evolved on its own kind of the unwritten rule is everyone is welcome to come, any, any fitness level, any skill level of running. But the idea is that you have to give it everything. And the threshold means that it's like the threshold at which you can run that distance the fastest. One more step and you'd collapse. So you kind of master the art of spending energy over distance and kind of a conservative way, but in a way that's like complete output. You know, mm-hmm. and I think it's a valuable skill set for any runner to have that experience. You know, it kind of unlocks um, a different gear in you when you're in the context of faster people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so as faster people show up, then that kind of raises the level of everything. I would, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. It's been a complete evolution, like step by step. I, I used to be the fastest runner. <laughs> And now it's it's gotten down to sub five minute miles on a Tuesday for like nine plus just because that's know, crazy. It's it's become like a, a proving ground. Like people from all I mean all over the running community all over the world that know about it when they're in town on business or in town for the marathon. It's it's uh, kind of a goal thing to do is to come on a Tuesday and just experience the the intensity of that type of run and. Mm engage it in whatever way they're comfortable, you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, you decided to have a race, and it was, it's an unsanctioned race. So can, can you explain um, what, what that means? Uh, yeah, so one of the ambitions I had when, when I was a kid going to work with my dad is like this idea of engaging the city at night when it's empty. And this was, you said, in the Bronx? Uh, we would deliver throughout Manhattan, but the bakery was in the Bronx, yeah. Okay, so it was we, a bread bakery. Yeah, we would be roaming around the city between like 2 a.m. to 4 a.m., you know, uh, delivering, and then from 4 on, you know, collecting. So 
seeing the city empty blew my mind and, and me and my dad being the only ones in visible sight for hours at a time was just mind-boggling you know new york city how so i always felt compelled to engage it and i thought it would be easy to execute a race at night because of that there's just less traffic less going on so um the first endeavor was called the, the midnight half and although it started at 11 p.m it ran through midnight and the idea was again you know engaging the city um, with a running race in a different context where it hasn't really been done before. And I, I just think, you know, traditionally the safety issues and the issues getting a permit of running a race in the city at night would be logistically impossible, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. So on a small scale, when we were operating with like 50 people, it was like, well, what if we just sent out an email mm -hmm. and organized a starting point, a series of checkpoints, and then a finish? And that's what we did. And it, and it was well received by the, I think it was like 67 people that ran the first one. But it was a total experiment, I would imagine. It was, yeah. It was In a, a way. I mean. It was an experiment and it was like a, just like, you know, a practice and execution. And like, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. We had no idea. It was uncharted territory. It was me and uh, my partner at the time was David Trimble from the Red Hook Crit. And um, he had race experience. So, you know, there was a comfort level in him being a part of it. And providing that experience and but it was uncharted territory for both of us in terms of putting on a running race in that in that context but we just kind of like I, I always felt like it was going to be something because even the name midnight half just kind of drew in interest mm -hmm. so whenever we would talk about it or whenever it would come up you know ears would perk up and to any runner the description is is just like candy you know like design your own route from one checkpoint to the next you have to know the city you have to have the you know the courage to take risks in traffic you have to be fast and all these things you know so it changed the the, the playing ground on, on who would win a race mm -hmm. you know so you had fast people that would win a new york roadrunners race losing to people that just had a better understanding of how to navigate the streets that's so interesting it, and yeah it was fun was it mostly men to start? Um, it, it was, it's always been kind of 65% uh, men, 35% women. Mm -hmm. And over the years we've done things, like we've created, in 2014 created the Women's 10K to kind of draw in more women because their performances during the midnight half would be amazing, but kind of overshadowed because all the, you know, it would be limited photography and, and whatnot, but they would focus on the men just mm. because they were in the lead. So creating the, the event strictly for women created this opportunity to put a stage up for these exceptional athletes that weren't getting credit due, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, that race has produced some entry points for the most influential women in the community of running that we exist. You know, they've gone on to Olympic trial qualifiers and starting their own running groups for women and just doing amazing things. And it's just kind of amazing to see them like come through OSR first and evolve, you know, what they experienced into something else, you know, as, as everybody does. But yeah, it's just been, a, you know, seeing all these new iterations pop up over the last 12 years. There's hundreds, if not thousands now. That's amazing. Different, not that we started it, but, you know, to be on the, the earlier side, it's been really interesting. So you started it. It seemed like it went really well. It started to get lots of attention. I mean, what did what was that experience like, though? How did it feel as far as you must have been concerned about safety? Yeah. And saying, like, I'm, 
you know, yes, you're putting you're a, you're responsible for yourself, but you were leading it. Yeah, there was a certain amount. I mean, there always is a certain amount of concern for safety, but there is this trust in the participants that they're interested in getting back safely just as much as we are. And, you know, anything that happens kind of unforeseen out there, I, you know, it's just the it's just the nature of the city. There have been instances where guys have kind of jumped over the hoods of cars and, you know, people had near misses, but luckily you know, running is so slow in comparison that to stop on a dime isn't isn't too difficult. And we urge people throughout the, the whole registration process to keep in mind that their safety and the safety of others is the priority. And if we see anybody doing anything too dangerous, um, we would have to, you know, ask them not to participate again. Because mm-hmm. it influences the people around them to do the same. So, yeah. Have you had to do that? Uh, no. Oh, good. Never. Yeah. Yeah, we've, it's, and I know it sounds like a certain level of, you know, risk, but in reality, when you're out there in control of yourself and doing things, you know, the risk is, is mitigated, I think, significantly from what it looks like. And you have, I've seen lots of photos of you on the bike leading the way, so you have people that are also helping. Not too, not too much. Um, we have some live streamers that are flies on the wall, kind of. Okay. Yeah, we try not to interfere with the pathway or the decision making or... <laughs> You know, like, who? what do I know what's safest for the guy over there, you know? Okay. Yeah. But you, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, we do, we, you know, we, as far as like, you know, we, we kind of preemptively load in people's minds the idea that, hey, you do have to be paying full attention here because we're not closing down streets, you know. Mm-hmm. Usually by the time they find us and sign up, that's what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a certain amount of like front-loaded awareness, thank God, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. comes to play. And, and over the last year, I've noticed a lot of repeat customers, and I feel like you know they're kind of the sales pitch for the new people. They're telling them, oh, this is how it is. And, mm-hmm. you know, so luckily, no one's been caught off guard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so over the years, you, um, you gained sponsorship and... I mean, it's really like, when did you start to feel, oh, this, this is turning into a real thing? You know, it's, it was 20, I think it was 2017, actually. I was finishing up a race that I had done out of um, my friend Shady's loft, and I was cleaning up, and he said something about my business. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, what business? And he said, look at this. This is a business. He's like, you're putting on events, you're selling tickets, you're gaining sponsorship. This is now a business. And I never thought about it that way. And I still kind of don't. I mean, I know that it is, obviously, but it's just day-to-day, um, like, chasing passion, really. Just, like, going after the the things that excite me most. And it just has been a perpetual path, like, kind of linked together by these endeavors, you know? Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, the sponsorship happened first in 2017. And it was after years of doing the events without because I was really adamant about developing them on my own and not with the influence of what benefits a sponsor. It was more about what benefits the athlete. And I think it's given us a certain flavor that even translates to the sanctioned races, Mm -hmm. which are, you know, hard to engineer, different than everything else around them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this last Saturday we had our first one and, and people's reactions were very positive and it felt different and it felt like it was theirs, you know. So that what what how did you end up deciding to do a sanctioned race after all this time? 
of a friend of mine that had done a podcast interview with me and I think it was five years ago or something he had a history of putting on events with a, an ex-partner of his that were sanctioned events and after the conversation we were just chatting and he's he said oh it'd be fun to do something together sometime and I said yeah anytime and we've always touched back on that over the years and recently he came up to me with an idea I mean a good idea he's like I want to get a permit for the weekend of the marathon and I thought that's genius <laughs> you know <laughs> like that's really fun and because uh, there's a lot of people in town that don't have a race to run that weekend and the talent pool is so deep that you know why not introduce this event that you know it could be really fun just because but also you know you can you can flex on it and there's a lot of people here to see it uh-huh you know and that's that's kind of what happened we had some really and it was a half marathon 13.1 yep half okay but you shut down the streets we didn't shut down the streets we did it in prospect park and we shut down the pedestrian path but, okay <laughs> but we're getting there we're okay getting okay yes yeah, and so what what are the what were the differences what are the perks or the drawbacks between the two? I mean, the perks were that, you know, you could grow a field into the thousands, you know, mm. with the right permit. So there's a safety concern that's alleviated being on closed courses. Um, we got USATF certified for distance, which allowed it to be a time qualifier for races like the New York City Marathon. Mm -hmm. So we can appeal for the first time to people that run sanctioned events for the benefits that certain times will bring them like qualifying oh, okay so um, we can draw in a fast crowd and you know they can get something out of it a lot of times the faster people aren't willing to take the risks of an unsanctioned event because of injury yeah and their coaches especially won't let them but um yeah you know every now and then one does and they usually lose it's kind of interesting that's so interesting yeah but um so this allowed for a different group of runners to engage osr and, you know, I'm always basically listening to feedback, and a lot of times the feedback is, I don't know the city that well, so I can't really compete, or, mm. you know, um, or you know my coach won't let me run an unsanctioned race. Mm -hmm. So everything I try to come up with tries to accommodate a new person that couldn't be accommodated before. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this was to accommodate those guys that maybe don't navigate the city as strong as some of the others and or that you know again you know didn't get into new york and wanted to qualify for next year yeah and yeah yeah i actually learned that throughout the the process of people picking up the bibs that it's perfectly time for a, a race called california international marathon which is where a lot of otqs happen a little bit trial qualifications mm -hmm. so it's a good intermediate race towards a different marathon so mm. We were generating all these customers from different pools of runners. Mm-hmm. Wow. Cool. So you're, it really has grown into something quite remarkable. I, it, in my opinion, yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm sure some people would look at it and say, oh, that's so small. You know, what's the significance? But I think it's, um, it's been an interesting component to the running world, you know, giving mm -hmm. people... Um, giving certain people a stage to perform on, mm -hmm. you know, ex-college pros or, you know, this year we had our first Olympic runner compete in one of our races and it was the OSR 30, which is like a 30-mile race around the perimeter of Manhattan. And the same guy had been winning it for about four years now, Travis Hawkins. He's like, a, was a nationally ranked Ironman, super competitive, very fit individual <laughs> who would just crush youth, you know, the young kids, everybody, he would just keep winning. 
But this year, this guy, uh, Greg Billington, who was a 2016 U.S. triathlete in the, the Olympics, I think it was Rio. Um, so he came in and he crushed it. He beat Travis by three minutes and change. Wow. Over 30 miles. But it was close, but not super close. And yeah, it's it's been a wild ride seeing the, the athlete, you know, level of athlete just continue to mm-hmm. get faster and faster. Wow, I'm sure. And you were saying that even just everybody seems to come in at a certain um, at a certain pace and then somehow instantly becomes faster. Yeah, I think you know people have a, a preset determination of what they're capable of, and and when they come into the context of uh, a race of ours or a Tuesday night run, they start so ferociously fast these races and runs that people are kind of thrusted into their their you know, out of their comfort zone. So people kind of unlock the ability to run faster because they're forced to, and then they realize they can. They're inspired to. Oh, really? (laughs) Come Tuesday. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I've seen people, like a lot of people come in at like a nine-minute pace to a Tuesday night run, and if they continuously come back, you know, I've seen them get as fast as seven minutes a mile in a couple of months, which is a dramatic change in their pace. Which means to me that they always were capable of doing it. They just didn't believe they could. Sort and, of just about motivation. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, I'm sure there are people that aren't ready to run seven minutes per mile. You know, that that's one thing. But I think there are a lot of people out there that have been hovering at eight, nine minutes a mile that can probably find a different gear if they looked, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we give them that context, perhaps. That's really cool. I mean, even in the time that since we started and since you started, um, you know, I mean, it's the nature of the city that things change, but we've seen a lot of change in the neighborhood. Yeah. How did you end up in the neighborhood initially? I, uh, in 2008, I got laid off and broke up with a long-term girlfriend and the apartment was hers. So it was time to relocate. And I spent about six months going from one rent, uh, monthly rental to another in Alphabet and just kept getting further south. And then I ended up in the pink building on Orchard and Grand, and that was a keeper for me. I was, you know, the, the people were great, and the space was amazing, and the location, I, it was a block from work. I picked up a job bar t- uh, hosting, actually, at Barrio Chino um, after architecture. And, yeah, that's what put me here. And, and it was just really the, the whole lifestyle change from you know the rigid midtown architecture life mm-hmm. um, to the very free you know open schedule like total immersion and in, in a interaction with community and everything else just found it really inspiring and I thought to myself this is what it should be mm-hmm. you know I should be this happy all the time I should feel this way when I'm working it mm-hmm. should be like this so I just found a way to will it I feel like it was just like I refused to stop. Um, kind of sitting on the bench on Orchard and interacting with people, and somehow that turned into a way to facilitate these events, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's a real community. Yeah. I mean, I so funny because I run into you a lot on Orchard <laughs> <Yeah>. Street. <laughs> I mean, we run into each other a lot, but we've never actually been able to, like, sit down and talk a lot about yeah. it. So I'm really grateful to have a conversation. Same. And, yeah. um yeah, I mean, we're, we're following the, you know, all the updates, but keep us posted. Absolutely. And uh, hopefully we can, uh, I don't know. I have, maybe I should get out to, to at least see one of these, these I think races. it's worth it. I, you may find that you, you, you have a passion for running. 
I might. I might. <laughs> All right. Um, well, thank you for joining us. I think that was great. It's a good time to stop. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was really nice.